On February 10th, 1986, People Magazine published a nationwide survey of its readers on the subject of sin. This poll was part serious, part tongue-in-cheek, and the results were published as a syndex. Uh, this survey was the largest of its kind to date, and it ranked sins according to their level of offense. Uh, so in the minds of the average American, sins like murder, rape, incest, child abuse, and spying against one's country were rated the worst, while sins like smoking, swearing, masturbation, and illegal videotaping appeared further down the list. Uh, parking in a handicapped spot was rated surprisingly high. Uh, unmarried couples living together got off pretty lightly. Uh, cutting in front of someone in line was deemed worse than divorce or capital punishment. Predictably, corporate sins were not named. And most telling of all, readers said they commit about 4.64 sins a month. We may laugh at that now, but 37 years later, what might that survey find today? Would we even be able to, as a culture, to recognize the category of sin? Or has the concept been rejected altogether? In a society that's devoid of the divine, secularism struggles to even acknowledge the possibility, much less the presence, of sin, personally, corporately, and cosmically. But it is our conviction that the biblical story, God's story, it is impossible to understand what God is doing in the world without a basic understanding of sin. Good morning, friends. My name is Hunter Hambrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and I get to preach to you today about Sodom and Gomorrah. Come on. Who's excited? So fun. Oh, man. I mean, honestly, who got dressed this morning? You know, you're putting on your socks, tying your shoes, and you're like, oh, man. You know, I just really hope I hear a sermon on Sodom today. I mean, I know Thanksgiving's around the corner, something about gratitude or thankfulness, you know, could be in order. But if I could, a sermon on sin and Sodom, that would be what would get me into the holiday spirit. I mean, that's what I need right now. Uh, if you thought that, you were a sicko. Um, <laughs> And you're in luck because we have exactly that. And uh, if you're new this morning, if it's your first time, I, I promise most of our sermons aren't like what this one will be today. Uh, please come back. <laughs> we are in a series of messages or talks based around the story of God. Uh, and we're starting in the very beginning of God's story in the book of Genesis. Uh, the story begins with Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and uh, begins with this story of creation, a, a world that God has made that's good and life-giving and, and produces fruit. Uh, but the story doesn't progress very far before humanity, those made in God's image and likeness, male and female, are tempted into sin. Uh, we talked about in week one that uh, the story we believe will shape the life we lead. And Adam and Eve, they, they buy the lie, they grasp what they should not take, and they give in to the serpent's temptation, and sin enters into the story. Consequently, God judges his image bearers and drives them east of Eden out of his garden. Uh, in week two, we looked at the story of Noah, the flood, and the ark, and Emmanuel talked about how Noah's name literally means rest. And his name serves as both a challenge and a reminder to us that we can rest from our own striving and trust in the almighty maker, uh, maybe especially in the storms and the floods of our life. 
uh, no surer sign of God's promise of rest to us is given than, than the war bow that's in the sky that uh, God basically makes a covenant with Noah and says, hey, I'm going to be at fault if something wrong is done on your behalf. In week three, we looked at the table of nations, which is basically a long lineage of the nations throughout the world. Uh, we talked about the call of Abram and the scattering at the Tower of Babel. Uh, these scenes depict the hope that comes when God breaks into our lives and oftentimes against our own will, frustrates our plans in order to fulfill his purpose. Amen. And just two weeks ago, Josh looked at the covenant and the carcasses. He talked about God between the pieces and in Genesis 15, how against all reason and logic, God so commits himself to this man, Abram, that he is willing to put his own neck on the line. To death do I part if I do not uphold this covenant promise. By walking between the pieces of bloody animals on each side, God said, let this be done to me if either of us fail to uphold our agreement. This week, we continue the story by looking at Lot, Sodom, and a city on fire. Lot, Sodom, and a city on fire. If you need a more heartwarming title to the message, you can call it Touched by an Angel. <laughs> Shout out to all my 90s kids. Uh, be a little more uplifting. And uh, we chose this as a top 10 story in the book of Genesis because, as Josh just mentioned, we don't believe that we get to pick and choose when it comes to our Bibles. Uh, one of our very first presidents, uh, Thomas Jefferson, actually did just this. He went into his Bible and literally cut out pieces of scripture that he did not like. Uh, as Christians, as believers, as Providence Bible Church, we don't have the luxury of doing such a thing. Uh, we don't get to pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we like or that make us comfortable. I've actually learned that the stories that make us cringe, and maybe especially the stories we don't understand, actually have the most capacity to produce meaning and value for our lives. So, so we approach this text this morning. We are going to begin in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you brought them with you. You can grab them and meet me there. If you've not already, you can turn the pages of your physical Bible or scroll in your phone or tablet. And we want to begin this morning by asking the question, a very important question, maybe the question that's the elephant in the room, what exactly was Sodom's sin? What exactly was Sodom's sin? Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 3 reads, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. We first meet Sodom in the biblical story in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, just one chapter after God calls Abram and promises to bless him and make his family a nation, uh, a light, a city on the hill for the rest of the world. Uh, not soon after the story progresses and, and Lot and Abram are forced to separate. The blessing of God had actually become so great on Abram's life that the ground literally struggled to support both of these families together. It's pretty amazing. 
Um, flocks and herds, tents and livestock, children and servants, gold and silver. Their possessions were too many uh, for the local ground to support them both living together. And so Lot, living by sight, not by faith, chooses the Jordan Valley to dwell in because at that time its fields were lush and green and pleasing to the eye. As a result, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. What looked good on the outside, though, was not so good on the inside. Already in that chapter, chapter 13, the writer describes the people in Sodom as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Fast forward to chapter 19, and Lot no longer lives in a tent like his uncle Abe. No, he has set up residence in the sin city. Moving from a sojourner to a citizen in the country far from God, Lot is no longer an onlooking outsider. He's a willing, active participator on the inside. I think this story, this, this movement from uh, just looking on and being in the direction of something and then becoming complicit and actually participating in its system is a warning to you, it's a warning to me, it's a warning to us, that our proximity oftentimes dictates our priorities. What you get close to will eventually determine what characterizes you. When we start to cozy up to sin, get a little comfortable with the misdeeds of the wicked, don't be surprised when that sin eventually begins to consume you in the end. Yet God never deals with sin in the abstract or the theoretical. No, no, no. Our God is far too kind for that. He only ever deals in the concrete and the specific. So if God is specific about sin, uh, we probably should be too. And so get ready. Let's break the ice this morning. When you grew up in church, uh, what were you taught was the sin of Sodom? Somebody be bold out loud. The sin of Sodom. What was the sin of the city of Sodom when you grew up? What did you hear? What was taught to you? Yeah, absolutely. Think of uh, same-sex relations. Anything else come to mind? What was the sin of Sodom? Anything else you've, you've heard? Greed, lust, envy. Okay, maybe a couple more. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. Not welcoming strangers. And uh, that option in hospitality is actually a terrific one. Um, in fact, this sin is found in verse 1, where we see our friend Lot sitting alone in the city gate. It wasn't midnight. It was evening. Uh, people were still awake. They should have been around. They should have been at the very front of the village where all the civic life was conducted. And in an ancient culture that lacked hotels and Airbnbs, this would have been a high, a highly, uh, yeah, this would have been a massive failure of care and concern for the other. So clearly, uh, Sodom's sin was not just sexual in nature, though it was that, as we will soon see. Uh, in fact, if you look at the biblical narrative, there are actually a whole other host of sins listed when the Bible talks about Sodom. I just picked out a few of them for our consideration. Uh, Isaiah 1 says that Sodom's sin was violently oppressing the widow and the orphan. Jeremiah 23 says that Sodom was adulterous, dishonest, corrupt, enablers of sin. Ezekiel chapter 16 says that they were arrogant, affluent, carefree, zero compassion for the poor and needy. Jesus himself is recorded in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke as saying that Sodom was unreceptive and inhospitable, unfaithful and unrepentant, self-concerned and self-protective. 
That's not until we get to the little bitty letter of Jude at the end of our Bibles that we read that Sodom was sexually immoral. Do you see where the weight of emphasis is? <laughs> it's not on Sodom's sexuality, but on their lack of sociability. Lord, help us. The main sin of Sodom is that it was a city which refused to welcome the stranger, and thereby it failed to welcome God. Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. In Hebrews 13, too, I think uh, appealing to this passage of Scripture, I do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some have shown hospitality to angels unawares. If this was the primary sin of Sodom, then we do well to ask, what exactly is sin anyways? Let's look at verses four to nine to find out. It reads, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. So often when we talk about sin in Christian circles, we talk about it as a failure to hit a mark. Has anybody heard that metaphor before? Sin is a failure to hit the mark, like an arrow that fails to hit the bullseye of the target of God's standards for righteousness. We too have failed to hit the mark. Uh, while that's true, it's, it's actually the main way that the Bible talks about sin, uh, but it's not the only way that the Bible talks about sin. One of my hopes this morning is actually to broaden our theological vocabulary of this thing that we call sin. Uh, maybe one helpful way to think of sin is either as a subject or a verb. Uh, don't, don't lose me now. Uh, stay with me. As a subject, sin is always the actor. It's the environment in which we find ourselves, often against our own will. As a verb, though, sin represents our actions, our choices, and our decisions to do what seems right in our eyes, despite what God has said. As a verb or action, the Bible depicts sin in unrelenting clarity, as a missing of the mark, yes, but also as a misuse of the good, a misdirection of desire a breaking of a vow, an act of idolatry or devotion, an act of defiance, shaking our fist at God, and also as an act of despair, losing hope and trust that God will actually be good on his promise. As subject or actor or agent, the Bible also, with uncompromising clarity, describes sin as a weight to bear, a debt to repay, an offense to acquit, a power to resist, a lie to make true, a deformity to correct, and a mutiny that rebels. Uh, admittedly, that, that's a lot of words on the screen there. But I want to take just a minute, 30 seconds for each slide, and I want you to reflect and ask yourself two questions. Number one, when you think of sins done against you, what comes to mind? 
And number two, when you think of sins that you've done, what comes to heart? When you think of sins done against you, what comes to mind? When you think of sins that you have done, what comes to heart? All right, now I want you to turn to your neighbor and share. <laughs> touch somebody, say, touch by an angel, touch by an angel, touch by an angel. Don't do that. Uh, sadly, in our day and age, much of our sin talk has been reduced, not to these words, but to words like mistake, addiction, neurosis, trauma. And while there's much that the Christian world has to learn from the worlds of psychology and counseling, uh, and no, no doubt many of these categories of, of sin and psychology kind of overlap, uh, so sometimes it's, it's tough to tell where uh, morality uh, begins and genetic makeup ends. Uh, and I'm not here to sort out all the gray today, but as a preacher, I, I just want to recover the basic conviction that uh, we have a great deficiency whenever we lack the capacity to describe the wrongs we've done against God. This is because, as female theologian and Episcopal priest Fleming Rut Rutledge says so well, sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. That's gas, as the young folks would say. That's slap. Sin. Come on, Fleming. Preach now. Sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. And in a culture that is devoid of the divine, we have no understanding of sin. In the absence of God, in the absence of God's good story, we have to come up with our own narrative to describe the wrongdoings we witness in this world. What was Sodom's sin again? Not just that they sinned against Lot, but that they sinned against the Lord. In a culture that denies the existence of God, we have no ability to call sin what it always has been and always will be, an offense against God. Right. And in verse 4, we see that uh, this uh, sin wasn't a uh, solo endeavor. No, this was not a select group of offenders. The whole town, from the young to the old, was involved in this crime. And I just wonder if we could put ourselves, just kind of activate your imagination and put yourself in the scene. Can you imagine, I mean, honestly, the fear as a father, as a mother, the terror, the dread that would have overwhelmed this family as you begin to hear your community members, your villagers surround your house. And, and, and before you know it, your, your entire home is surrounded by a lust-fueled mob. Sadly, those in the room today who have been victims of sexual assault or who have walked with those who have know the horrors of unwanted sexual advance all too well. And God sees you, and like the angels who have come into this city, he wants to make things right. For those more inclined to depersonalize the story, some philosophical critiques might emerge. My conservative friends are quick to note that uh, verse 5 says that the sin of Sodom was same-sex in nature. And this is true, to be sure. 
But the graphic threat described here of homosexual gang rape is more like a scene out of Shawshank Redemption than Brokeback Mountain. On the other hand, some of my more progressive friends will call a lot primitive and patriarchal for offering up his daughters to a violent mob. What kind of father would do that? While I'm inclined to agree, it must be noted that uh, many Bible scholars are divided on the degree to which uh, Lot was or was not acting honorably in this scene. Um, That's because it seems that perhaps one way to read this story is that Lot is really attempting to prick the conscience of his readers uh, by offering the mob something that would have been unimaginable. Uh, So rather than actually offering up his daughters, right, he's saying, um, I would have you do to my own family something so wicked before I would have you do that to my guest. Does that make sense? Uh, Either way you slice it, we must be careful not to critique cultures that we've never lived in. Hard shift here. Has anyone seen Lone Survivor, the movie starring uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg? Thank you, HUD. I knew you had. It's about an American man named Marcus Luttrell, a retired U.S. Navy SEAL who served during the war in Afghanistan. Uh, the movie, based on a true story, shows how an Afghani man named Muhammad Gulab rescued Luttrell as he lay wounded and dehydrated hours away from certain death. Even though Luttrell carried an automatic weapon and uh, Gulab himself was unarmed, uh, Gulab took Luttrell into his home, bandaged him up, washed him clean, think of the Good Samaritan, uh, clothed him, fed him, and protected him for five days straight. This decision, the choice to honor an ancient code that Afghans called Pashtunwali, nearly cost Gulab and his family their lives. Gulab decided to reject money and bribes from the Taliban in exchange for Luttrell uh, simply because his community had committed to treat strangers with hospitality and asylum no matter the cost. Side note, can you imagine how different our world would be if Christians learn how to love their neighbors and their enemies like that? Some think that Lot may be living opportunistically here, but I think that this story of Mr. Gulab and Officer Luttrell is the closest modern depiction we have to what's actually taking place in this scene. Uh, These messengers from God have come literally under the shadow of Lot's protection, as it says in verse eight. And Lot, righteous as he is, refuses to succumb to the violent threats of the mob. And the mob does not like it, not one bit. In verse 9, they begin to belittle Lot. They mock him simply because he's a foreigner, questioning his competency to act as their judge. And the irony, of course, is that while this mob speaks about judgment, there is no justice in this place. Instead of justice, these men choose lawlessness, warning Lot that they'll do even worse to him. And before you know it, they are beating down the door just to satisfy their sexual lust. Thankfully for Lot, though, he is touched by an angel, rescued and returned home. Verses 10 through 13 reads, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. What a picture, by the way, of us and our sin. (laughs) 
blinded by the God of this age, groping and grasping for anything we can get our hands on that we think will scratch the itch. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry of injustice against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Here we must consider not just what was the sin of Sodom or what is sin in general, but what is sin's ultimate cost? If you've paid attention to our journey through Genesis so far, you may have picked up on a few parallels here in Genesis 19 with the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. In Genesis 6, the Nephilim, fallen angels, sin sexually against the daughters of men. Here in Genesis 19, the men of Sodom try to sexually assault angels of God. In both accounts, the sin of the culture is so widespread that God feels he must destroy these cities. Yet here, as in the flood account, God in his kindness rescues a righteous remnant in order to fulfill his purpose. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. Near the end of this chapter, in verse 29, there's a word-for-word refrain, God remembered Abraham. In Genesis 8, God totally destroys a godless community. In Genesis 19, God destroys the wicked again, this time not with a flood, but with fire. And finally, in Genesis 9, Noah gets drunk. His sons see him naked, and he then curses his descendants. In Genesis 19, Lot's daughters get him drunk on wine, sleep with him, and a curse lineage is born. What's the point? Why do I tell you all of this Bible trivia? The point is that sin is a self-repeating story. There's nothing new under the sun. Sin is the algorithm that never stops. It's the self-reinforcing feedback loop of our own disordered desires. And that's exactly what the narrator is trying to tell us. He's saying, hey, avoid that road. Don't go down sin's way. Just as with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the generation of the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the city of Sodom, the final scene of death of sin is death. Always. Therefore, the message is clear. Avoid sin at all costs before sin costs you everything. Avoid sin at all costs before sin costs you everything. I hear the words of the old Baptist preacher in the back of my mind. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The lesson of Sodom is clear, my friends. Avoid sin at all costs or sin will cost you everything. Amen. I was reading through these chapters the other day, and one part of the story stood out to me like never before. Uh, I began this sermon by referencing Genesis 13, where Lot and Abram split. And it made me ask myself, is that the last time that we see Sodom in the biblical drama before Genesis 19? And uh, spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> Uh, In the very next chapter, Genesis 14, the writer tells us this strange account about the king of Sodom, who he goes out on a military raid, uh, and he attempts to rule over the people of the land, and one of the people that he captures is Lot. 
In response, his uncle, Abraham, goes on his own SEAL Team 6 mission. He, uh, it's pretty cool. He takes 318 of his fighting men born in his own house and rescues Lot back along with all of his possessions and all of his people. And as I was reading this account in Genesis 14, it hit me like a ton of bricks. What a picture of our salvation. God, like Abram, has rescued us, all of our possessions, all of our people from the hand of our enemy, sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. He's completely delivered us from bondage once and for all. And yet, like Lot, So many times, even though we've been saved, even though we've been set free, even though we've been delivered, we can find ourselves sitting on Sodom's doorway. We can find ourselves cozying up to sin. And when we do this, we're playing with fire. When we go back to our old master's sin, when we tolerate sin, we test God's limits. And yes, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as Exodus 34 says. But, 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 he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. When we give into sin, instead of becoming a blessing to the culture around us like Abraham, a light to the nations, a city on the hill set apart, we become unwitting participants in the wickedness around us. And in the end, we actually put ourselves and our families, think of Lot's wife, his sons-in-law, we put them in danger of being destroyed along with the wicked. And the lesson of Sodom could not be more clear for us in our age of tolerance and compromise, that we must avoid sin at all costs because sin will cost you everything. I'll invite the music team to the stage to lead us in a final song, but as they make their way down front, I, w- I want to tell you a story I heard back in college from one of my professors, uh, Dr. Vlakos. Dr. Vlakos was a Greek man who taught New Testament at the Christian college that I attended, and um, he grew up in inner city Chicago, and uh, believe it or not, his dad was actually a former mafia member. <laughs> he literally knew Capone, uh, which is pretty crazy. Uh, One day in class, Dr. Vlakos told us this story about being a young kid in inner city Chicago and how his friends loved nothing more than to see the train roll by on the tracks. Uh, No matter what time of year it was, summer or winter, they would eagerly stand outside uh, waiting for one of the crew members at the very end of the train to toss chalk uh, to the kids. Just a, a simple pleasure. Fast forward 50 years later, and Dr. Vlakos was now a professor at our college in the suburbs of Chicago, and one day he was sitting quietly in his office, and he heard the uh, screeching sound of a train come hissing along the tracks, and his, his ears perked up. He peered out the window. He, he looked down at the locomotive, and images of his childhood began to flash across his mind. He kept looking out the window long enough, and he got to the very end, and he he noticed that to his dismay, there was no longer a caboose at the end of the train. The end had been cut off. Dr. Vlakos used that story to tell us that that is exactly what we have done with the story of God. We've cut off the caboose. We've eliminated the end. We can't stand the thought of judgment It makes our stomachs turn to think that God is some capricious, vindictive bully in the sky, ready to smite anyone down who messes up or makes a mistake. 
my pastoral heart this morning is to encourage you and warn you that that is not the God of the Bible. Will the God of all the earth not do what is just? Of course he will. He will deliver the righteous. He, ha- he desires that no one perishes apart from the knowledge of himself. But that doesn't mean we get to presume upon the grace of God. Read the end of the story sometime this week. Revelation chapter 20 through 23. The caboose of God's word could not be more clear. The king the ruler of this universe will come back to judge the living and the dead. And if you're a Christian this morning, you believe that. The Apostles' Creed, it's on our wall in our auditorium. And after preaching about sin and Sodom for 30 minutes, I have zero desire to lecture you about hell this morning, mainly because I don't think that's what this story is all about. But if you're a Christian, you have to grapple with the doctrine of the judgment of God. My pastoral plea this morning is to not cut off the caboose, to not presume upon God's grace, because in Christ, we have been shown limitless hospitality. Christ offers us safety in his home, not as visitors merely passing through, but as permanent eternal citizens under the protection and involved and active in his forever family. In Christ, God washes not just our feet, but our souls through salvation and baptism. In Christ, God didn't just make us bread. He prepared a banquet for us in the form of his own body broken and blood poured out. And in Christ, on the cross, God has absorbed all of the wrath in his son, not just for a city, but for every single saint who will call upon his name. So my plea this morning is simply don't spurn your host. Don't violate the laws of hospitality of this open-armed, wide-hearted, overwhelmingly loving God. Don't trample his blood. Don't cut off the caboose. Don't test the limits of his mercy and grace. Instead, avoid sin at all costs before it costs you everything, namely Christ himself. Let's pray. Father God, I was nervous (laughs) preaching this morning, knowing that this topic is so sensitive and uh, this passage of scripture in particular has been wielded and twisted uh, to cause abuse and harm to so many, especially uh, those in the LGBTQ community. And so Father God, I pray that you would uh, do what only you can do and to soften the hearts of those who are hearing this word, that we would not be uh, deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, but instead we would exhort one another as long as today is called today to live in repentance and faith, uh, turning aside from our sin, not turning back to Sodom and our old master the way that Lot did, but instead looking to you, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would have your way, that your wind would blow into the hearts and minds of everyone in this room, that if we had been uh, caught up in sin, Lord, we would know that as long as today is called today, there is an opportunity for repentance. There's an opportunity for a fresh start. There's an opportunity to turn back to you knowing that you are full of love and compassion, but that God, we would not presume upon your mercy, knowing that we are just a minute away, an accident away from stepping 
onto the other side of eternal life. Lord, help us this morning. Not just to avoid sin at all costs, but to embrace you no matter what. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, you may stand as we respond and worship this morning.